Well, like many children's hospitals across Canada these days, Alberta's two hospitals are seeing a surge in pediatric patients as they deal with a real rise in respiratory illnesses. Uh, we've seen it in Hamilton. We saw it at Chio in Ottawa, sick kids in Toronto. Those are some of the ones that have really been making headlines out here in BC as well. But health officials have said that the Calgary Hospital and the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton have been operating at or above 100% of their normal capacity for the past month, imagine that's a long time for a hospital to be under that kind of strain. Uh, a, surgeon, a surge in patients at uh, ACH prompted Alberta Health Services to redeploy staff there from Rotary Flames House, a facility that provides respite care for chronically and terminally, terminally ill kids. So they've had to start moving staff around. Think about that as well, just to make up the gap. Now, the government there says they've secured another 5 million bottles of children's medication to manage fever and pain. This is Health Minister Jason Copping today. The past few weeks have been incredibly challenging for parents, for caregivers, for healthcare professionals, and for our entire healthcare system. When our kids are sick, we will do whatever it takes to help them. And, and quite frankly, as a parent, I know how helpless you can feel when your child isn't feeling well and how you want to do everything in your power to make them feel better. Now, not that any other province has been jumping to do this either, but anything it takes does not include some measures, obviously, because when asked what her government was doing to prevent illnesses in the first place, Premier Daniel Smith suggested that question was off topic. Here's the here's the fact of the matter. We know that we've been hit with RSV, COVID and influenza all at once. Sadly, there isn't a vaccine for RSV and it is the most common childhood illness. And so what people need to know is that when their child gets sick, that they have the medication available to them so that they can treat the symptoms at home. Well, that seems a bit like offering Tylenol when you've had a hangover instead of telling someone not to drink. But anyway, uh, health officials saying staying home, say, staying home when sick is a good plan. Wearing a mask, getting vaccinated for flu and COVID-19 would help reduce the overall strain on hospitals right across the board. Joining me now with more is Dr. Shazma Mizani, or Mithani rather, emergency room physician at the Royal Alexandra and Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton. Thank you so much, Dr. Mithani. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me tonight. So this has been, we've been reading about this for a while. We know it's been going on for the better, more than a month now, really since October, hasn't it? And, and just how bad has it gotten? Well, it's gotten uh, even worse than it was when it started back in October, as you mentioned. We're continuing to see ongoing pressure in the pediatric emergency departments in Alberta. Uh, we're seeing high volumes of patients who are requiring emergency care. And then as a result of that, a high volume of patients who are needing to be admitted to hospitals, mostly because of respiratory illnesses. And so it's been a big challenge to try to um, tackle these volumes and try to take care of all of these sick kids lately. Uh, and what's been, I mean, we've talked a lot about this triple storm of flu, COVID um, and, R, R, and RSV. Is, is that what is, is it really these respiratory illnesses that is causing this huge jump? We just haven't seen it. We haven't seen it combined like this in the past, certainly. Well, yeah, we certainly haven't seen a combined like this in the past, and we're seeing um, those three viruses, but also just regular run-of-the-mill cold viruses that we see around this time of year. Uh, the problem right now is that the viruses, in particular influenza and RSV, spiked a lot earlier, started to rise a lot earlier than we were expecting uh, compared to previous years and even pre-pandemic years. And so we're seeing quite a bit higher numbers and an earlier uh, pressure that was put on the healthcare system with those two viruses in particular. And we're only just starting to see the COVID-19 numbers starting to creep up now. I mean, that's still going to add additional pressure to those other two viruses. 
And then, of course, the, you know, there aren't just three respiratory viruses in existence. There are, there are, you know, hundreds of respiratory viruses that exist out there. And so there's lots of those floating around as well. And so all of these things combined um, are, are causing our kids to get quite sick. I can imagine for parents it'll bring some solace if they can find kids' medication at the pharmacy again, but I can't imagine it's going to solve your problem. Well, that's just it. I mean, of course, we never want kids to suffer, and um, fever and pain medication like acetaminophen and ibuprofen, which is what that announcement was part of today, are a very important part of making sure that kids are comfortable and feel better. However, uh, in my experience, it's not parents who are coming to the ER with with fevers um, or with you know, uh, looking for medications that is causing um, this big influx of patients. It's often uh, kids who are having trouble breathing um, and have been having persistent cough and persistent symptoms beyond just a fever that's causing this pressure on the emergency department. And so uh, I'm happy that we have these medications to help make our kids feel better. Um, but I, I am not quite sure that it's actually going to take off the pressure as much as we need it to. Dr. Mathani, what is it like compared to, I mean, for someone who's never set foot or who's, hasn't set foot inside a kid's ER in a very long time, what are you seeing now that you hadn't seen before? Mm-hmm. So um, we're seeing just the sheer numbers are definitely what we haven't seen before. So those sheer numbers are like quite unprecedented right now where we are seeing much higher volumes of patients who are coming in and registering in the waiting room or in the emergency department to be seen. Uh, it's harder for these patients to get in to see us because we're so full. And so that waiting room is getting more full of patients. And so those wait times are quite a bit higher than we're used to seeing often approaching the double digits on very busy days. And then we're also seeing a higher number of these patients requiring admission to hospital. So, you know, previously, thankfully, kids don't tend to get very sick. And so even in the emergency department, when we do see kids, most of them we get to send home. Um, but we are seeing a higher number of patients require admission to hospital with these respiratory illnesses and with difficulty breathing or requiring oxygen. And so all of these um, things are really what we haven't seen before. And all of these things are contributing to the pressure that we're continuing to see right now. And not to mention, I, I can't even imagine what the impact on your work environment is when parents are coming in with sick children. They're obviously worried about them. I, I, I gather you're having to uh, create waiting rooms and spaces that weren't meant to be waiting rooms just to deal with the overload uh, and then move staff out of other areas where kids need help to try to help with this. I mean, it seems like I, mean, I think you put it in another interview. You said we're playing chicken in terms of whether the numbers are going to go down or whether the system is going to collapse. That's some pretty those are strong words from, from a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the exact concern. What, what we're seeing is, you know, I, I've said this before um, to colleagues in an interviews that I think that the healthcare workers in the emergency department are some of the most innovative healthcare workers that exist in the system because we are always trying to um, be flexible to try to uh, find um, unique solutions to the situation, the pressure that we're facing. And, and oftentimes that means uh, seeing patients in unconventional spaces, uh, trying to make um, different waiting spaces or, you know, seeing someone in a room and then sending them back out to the waiting room while, while we're waiting for results to come back, for example, if it's safe to do so, um, using clinic spaces in other parts of the hospital. And, of course, that's all limited by staffing, as you mentioned. And so we're really just trying to do the best we can to to adjust and to, to manage these volumes. But um, there's a limit to that. There's a limit to the uh, physical resources that we have, and there's a limit to the human resources that we have. And of course, my concern and the concern of all of my colleagues is that if we continue to see this pressure and then run out of options in terms of ways to mitigate it, 
we're going to start seeing bad outcomes and nobody wants to see that happen. Yeah. How close do you feel like you are to that? I mean, I can tell you my personal experience in a shift I had a few weeks ago where we were so busy. Um, there were constantly over 30 to 40 kids in the waiting room for my entire shift. We were out of resuscitation rooms. We were out of monitored acute care rooms. And when, when you're that full, you have no idea in the emergency, you have no idea what's going to walk in the door ever, right? It's always a, it's, you can never expect what, what's going to come in. And so in that situation, I had um, a baby come in that was having difficulty breathing and we had nowhere to see this baby. And thankfully, um, again, you know, we're as resourceful as we can be. We used an unconventional space to try to, to get this baby in as quickly as possible to get that baby on oxygen and, and frankly, save that baby's life. And we, if we, didn't have that space. I don't even want to think about what, what the outcome could have been because it's these types of situations are becoming more and more common. And I, I, I don't know how to answer your question in terms of how long it's going to be. It's, it's a day by day thing. And I just hope that it never gets there. But the concern is that as we continue to have days like this, that are the norm, um, that we may not have a space uh, to see people in when, when they need us the most. I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but it sounds like you're triaging in a war zone. It's certainly what it feels like um, on on most days now. I mean, we're in a situation where uh, you mentioned triage, right? And so triage is where um, a patient and their family comes to see the, the nurse. That's their first point of contact into the healthcare system. There's a story that's taken, their vital signs are taken, and they're put in the queue based on how sick they are. One of the problems that we're facing both at the Stollery and Alberta Children's right now, the two pediatric hospitals in Alberta, is, is that there's even a line to see triage. Sometimes the wait to even get triaged is in excess of 90 minutes to two hours. And that in and of itself is, is quite concerning and can be very dangerous because you, you could be waiting with, with a sick child just to be able, be able to be assessed and triaged to get put in the queue. And, and that, frankly, is unacceptable. Dr. Mathani, what would a good first step look like? Uh, a plan, I guess, would be probably be the best place to start, but I get, this, I get the impression you probably have an idea about what needs to be done. Yeah, you know, I think it needs to really be a multifactorial approach here, and I think it starts just simply by having um, ongoing acknowledgement of, of what the issues are and, and transparency with the public uh, in terms of, of what we're seeing and, and what steps our um, elected officials are taking in order to try to address this. As you mentioned, kind of off the hop, prevention is the best medicine, right? I would prefer not to see people in the emergency department uh, if possible. And so, honestly, things like vaccines and masks, like this, these are proven entities that will decrease the spread of respiratory viruses. I know that, um, you know, there was there were some comments made today about how RSV doesn't have a vaccination, but you know what does? Influenza and COVID-19, and they're very effective right. vaccines, and they and they not only prevent the um, uh, contraction of the illness, but they they very much also prevent the severe outcomes that we're seeing. And so what that means is you might still get those viruses, but you're probably not going to need to be hospitalized for them. And so I would like to see uh, a big public push for vaccines. I'm not asking for a mandate, but a strong recommendation and strong encouragement from the government would really go a long way um, in order to to make sure that we're using preventative medicine to, to keep people out of hospitals. Um, Public education in general, I think, is going to be important too. Just you know, making sure that people understand 
when it's appropriate to use the emergency department versus when it's appropriate to see their family doctor or pediatrician um, and getting resources out in the community to, to help uh, offload the volumes that we're seeing. Um, as I mentioned before, thankfully, most people are still discharged in the pediatric hospitals. Like, yes, there are higher admission uh, admissions, but most people are still discharged. And so if we can try to find a way to offload that volume to the community by having people see urgent care clinics or like I said, family doctors or pediatricians, and really just helping to educate parents and the public on, on what can be done at home uh, in order to keep, um, keep their children comfortable and, and hopefully out of the hospital. Yeah, I, I imagine too, you know, this too shall pass as things do. Um, what everything looks like when it does, we don't know, but this too shall pass. What would you like to be, you know, and then people tend to forget, right? We move on and then people forget what happened. What would you like the lasting um, not legacy, it's not a legacy, but the lasting impact of this to be, clearly there needs to be some form of systemic change. We've seen it in ERs writ large, but clearly now that we're seeing it in children's ERs, we we have to recognize that there's been a, a problem with infrastructure and, and, and capacity there too. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely, that's a great question. I think, again, it's kind of a, a two-pronged approach. I would say that going forward, um, that we need to really start investing in primary and preventative care. Um, Because if, again, ideally you want to keep people out of the acute care system because that is expensive. Um, And it's also uh, the worst case scenario for patients. We, people shouldn't have to be admitted to hospital if we can avoid it. And so really kind of shifting our focus on, on uh, away from kind of band-aid solutions and having the hospital be a safety net and focusing on um, having a more robust primary care system with more family doctors, more community pediatricians, um, really focusing on public health uh, and funding public health to uh, get vaccination campaigns um, going as well. And again, to really just try to keep people healthy in the community and, and out of the acute care system. Now, that being said, um, there's been a, you know, a lot of talk about just how, um, uh, how our hospital system is not adapted to the growing population of pediatric patients. And I think that we need to take a close look at that and, and um, again, just kind of fund, fund what we need to in terms of uh, what is required for our current population. In most situations, I would say both in, in pediatric patients and even in adults, if we have a, a strong preventative and primary care system, we don't actually, like, we shouldn't have too much redundancy in, in the system, in the acute care system, because, again, with a publicly funded healthcare system, which I think is really important, redundancy is expensive, and we want to try to be as cost-effective as possible. And when we're talking about being cost-effective, the evidence always points to, again, I'm kind of like a broken record, but primary care and preventative medicine, that's what's going to be the biggest bang for our buck and, and to keep people as healthy as possible. And I think there just needs to be a general shift in mindset on focusing on that because, um, you know, ICU, ICU capacity and new hospitals, these are all very sexy things to talk about uh, during election cycles. But um, the, the evidence lies with just focusing on community and primary care with, uh, with making sure that our healthcare system remains um, sustainable and, and available to everybody going forward. Well, Dr. Mathani, I wish you the best of luck. And, you know, we appreciate all your hard work, obviously. I hope situa- the situation improves. Obviously, we watch from afar. I hope so, too. Thanks for having me tonight.